You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life. Come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hello, Father Hezekiah. Hello, Annie Mitchell, and all of our ICC Sunday Gospel Reflection peoples. Participants. Participants. We are here for the Sunday. Well, it depends on how you want to count it. So in the, in the, in the traditional Byzantine calendar, the third Sunday after Pentecost. Mm-hmm. In the traditional mm-hmm. Roman Catholic calendar, I do believe... It's probably, I guess probably it's the, the same, the third Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. Last Sunday was, is customarily called the Sunday after Corpus Christi. Although in the Novus Ordo, they moved Corpus Christi to, to Sunday, Sunday instead of the Thursday. It was a, very confusing. But the most important thing is this, that we are living now within the atmosphere of Pentecost. And I got to tell you that honestly, just a moment ago, I looked out the window and there was a grass fire behind our church, not on our property, but in the neighboring property, oh, it's a God. grass okay. field and California, of course, is very dry right now. And there's a little wind blowing and it just like a fort, like a fire. Just like I grabbed the hose, pulled the hose out there. It was watering down our property and saying like that because it was coming at us literally five minutes ago. So cool. we are really living in the <laughs> in the in the bright shining light of pentecost the fire of the holy spirit has descended upon the church and now we get to live out this time i know in the novus ordo calendar you know what it is called 13th it called? 13th sunday in ordinary time so ordinary we've just time. entered the back on to the ordinary time calendar i gotta it's a little hobby horse for me but i gotta say it there's nothing ordinary about liturgy yeah. yeah. So this whole ordinary time business, which was invented by Bugnini, the reform of the, uh, the reform of the mass. Because it, this is like the yeah. after Pentecost, the post Pentecost, like yeah. that's how liturgy is ordered up through like September, right? It, it, all exactly. It's to the feast of the Holy Cross. And then we begin, we begin focusing looking toward Advent, looking toward yeah. Advent in all the readings. Anyways, I'm not, I, look, I'm going to offend half of our group here. So I'm I don't want to do that, but just to continue in this light of Pentecost that we're continuing on liturgically to live this missionary gift out, which Christ has given us and the readings and all of us reflect that as we're going to see even in the new lectionary cycle. Mm -hmm. So it's not very ordinary. Yeah. The gift of the Holy Spirit. That's my point, but let's go. Give us our passages. Annie. The passages for the 13th Sunday in ordinary time, the third Sunday past Pentecost, Our first reading is from 1 Kings chapter 19, and uh, we have like an establishing verse of uh, 16b, and then verses 19 through 21. 
Our responsorial psalm is Psalm 16. Our gospel for this weekend is Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. And our epistle is from St. Paul's letter to the Galatians chapter 5. Start off with verse 1, and then we will be reading verses 13 through 18. So I hope you wrote that down. So if you're following along in your Bible, you can keep up with us. Here we go. First Kings. First chapter Kings. 19. Yes. Chapter 19. Again, we start with verse 16 and then we skip down to 19. Yeah. The Lord said to Elijah, you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat of Abel Mahola as prophet to succeed you. Elijah set out and came upon Elisha, son of Shaphat, as he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. He was following the 12th. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak over him. Elisha left the oxen, ran after Elijah and said, please let me kiss my father and mother goodbye and I will follow you. Elijah answered, go back. Have I done anything to you? Elisha left him and taking the yoke of oxen, slaughtered them. He used the plowing equipment for fuel to boil their flesh and gave it to his people to eat. Mm. Then Elisha left and followed Elijah as his attendant. Very interesting reading that we have thus, here. Thus the spiritual insights of the Old Testament. Yeah, this is what happens <laughs> when you play a uh, Bible roulette you know you open to a passage and you read it and then you're supposed to get all these wonderful spiritual insights out of you're it like, what you're like well, I don't know the poor the poor oxen <laughs> yeah I know right <laughs> yeah I mean that's one of the questions that I have here today but I think just first of all for for I mean clearly a lot of the ICC participants here have a good basis in kings you love to go to the 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 books of kings but for those who aren't can you just kind of give us a big picture what yeah. do we need to know in general about Elijah and Elisha you pronounce him Elisha or 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 Elias Elias if you're following oh, okay. the Septuagint the Greek text Anyways, but Elijah and Alicia, yes. Yes. So, okay. So a little bit, quick, very quick context, because we've been out of this for, for a while now in which, I mean, really it was, it was back during Lent that we were here talking about the Babylonian exile, which we talk about a lot in SGR yeah. because it is such a foundation for the ministry of Christ to understand what he's doing and the, why he's doing it and what it would have meant to the people, because it's the major crisis in the Old Testament, which predates the coming of the Messiah. And so by 500 years, but nevertheless, it is the major event which drives the, the story of the coming of the Messiah, the expectation of the coming of the king, the restoration of the Davidic kingdom because of its fall during the Babylonian exile. So there's your context, but what's the context of the Babylonian exile is of course, the breaking apart of the kingdom itself, right? The right. David comes in, Solomon builds the temple, everything is honky-dory, and well, not so much, right? Because Solomon himself falls to the temptations of the pagan nations around him. He marries many, 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 many wives of the pagan persuasion and ends up building uh, temples or uh, high places, altars to the false gods on the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley from the Temple Mount. 
So look, you walked out of the temple, you'd see all the sacrifices to the false gods taking place on the opposing hill. And those that have been to Jerusalem with me understand what that look, would look like. I mean, it's, it's in your face. Like if you're on yeah. the Temple Mount, you're looking right there at the Mount of Olives. Wow. So the situation was not good. And, and just for those that want to go back and do a little reading, here's what you're going to do for context for Elijah. If you want to do a little more study, read 1 Kings chapter 10. Okay. 1 Kings chapter 11 in which it says that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Wow. I don't know if you got 700, 700 wives, why you need 300 concubines, but <laughs> God, yeah, Solomon, wow. He didn't want uh, to marry those 300, you know? Right. It's, yeah. And, there, and then it says that he built the high places in verse chapter 11, verse 7, to Chemosh and Molech. Okay, so they're doing child sacrifice on the Mount of Olives. Wow. Whoa, not good. He enslaved his brother Joseph in chapter 11, the sons of Joseph, that is, the, the tribe of Joseph. And 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the kingdom split. So there's, there's the most important thing for really what's going on in the story of Elijah, is that there's a, a division in the kingdom of David between the northern ten tribes and Judah and Benjamin. Benjamin gets really subsumed into Judah. So you end up with these two nations, basically. The northern 10 tribes form their own kingdom and leave Judah at the, that has the throne of David, right? In Jerusalem, they abandon that. So there's two kings end up there. And these the are Solomon's sons, right? Correct? Not exactly. Not exactly. Okay. The king in, of Judah is, yes, descendant of Solomon. Okay. But in the north, there's a, a breaking apart and they follow another guy. Jeroboam, who was a servant of Solomon and his son. Okay? okay. And so anyways, he goes north, he forms a kingdom up there. They established a throne city up there. And you can pick this story up here in chapter, first Kings chapter 16. It's important to our gospel text here. We can go to verse 21. Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Now, this is a further schism that takes place right now. When we're talking about the people of Israel, we're talking about the northern 10 tribes. Mm -hmm. At this point in the, in the Old Testament, the northern 10 tribes are called Israel, and the southern is just Judah, the Jews, right? So, so the northern 10 tribes is called Israel. It gets very confusing because when we think of Israel, we think of, oh, that's the Old Testament people of God. Well, yet before the schism, then it's all called Israel. But after the schism, after the breaking apart of the things, the northern 10 tribes called Israel. And Israel itself breaks apart then. People of Israel were divided into two parts. Half the people followed Tibni, the son of Genath, and to make him king. And a half followed Omri. But the people followed Omri overcame the people of Tibni, the son. Okay, so Tibni died and Omri became king. Okay, so there's a division, but then the division's healed. In verse 23, in the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah. So there you go. When you're reading 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, it's always reference to the other king. So in the, so if you're talking about the northern tribes, the 10, tri, 10 tribes that now called Israel, how do you know when something's taking place? By reference to the king of Judah. But okay. if you're talking about Judah, they'll reference the king of Israel to give you your timestamp. Okay, there you are. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became, began to reign over Israel, and he reigned for 12 years. Six years he reigned in, in Tirzah. 
He bought the hill of Samaria hmm. from Shemer for two talents of silver. And he fortified the hill and called the name of the city which he built Samaria after the name of Shemer, right? Shemaria, see that? Mm -hmm. The owner of the hill. There you have it. Who are the Samaritans? The Samaritans are really, by extension, the whole of the northern ten tribes identified with the throne city. Yes? Mm -hmm. So Samaria is, is the throne city, but by extension, then everyone who follows the throne of Samaria, right, of, uh, right, of, of Omri's mm -hmm. kingship, are going to call called Samaritans. And ultimately, who are these people? We're going to find out because they're going to, after this text about Elijah, they're actually going to get conquered by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are going to import all sorts of people that they've conquered in the land, and they're going to corrupt God's people. And they're going to, and so the Samaritans are actually going to end up being people who worship Yahweh, but they also worship all sorts of false gods uh, in that area. And so that's why this tension between the Jews from Judah, right? The Jews and the Samaritans, this Jews look at the Samaritans as kind of like half breed corrupted people that they kind of like, um, is it the Unitarians that are just like, oh yeah, whatever you want to worship, it's fine. You know, it's all. Well, Unitarians are worse than the Samaritans. <laughs> At least the Samaritans <laughs> worship something, you know. Sure. But well, the okay, good don't point. really worship anything. It's kind of like, uh, yeah. You've heard my joke before, right, Annie? What happens when you cross a Jehovah's Witness and a Unitarian Universalist? Oh, I can't wait to hear this. Someone who knocks on your door on Saturday morning for no particular reason. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. This is, okay. All right. But here we are. Let's get to our text, which is, which is chapter 19 and the story of Elijah more specifically now. Yeah. Elijah is sent to the northern 10 tribes, to the Samaritans, to tell them, you better reform your lives because you're, you're way out of whack. What's, why, why, why are things so bad? Well, to understand that, then the context, you have to just simply go back and read chapters 17 and 18. Mm -hmm. In which we find out that Elijah is reigning during the, Elijah is called during the reign of Ahab. Ahab is the king of Israel at the time. He marries the evil queen, Jezebel. Jezebel cuts off all of the prophets of God, has them all killed, and, and, and then elevates all the false prophets of Baal who go around sacrificing to Baal and corrupting the people. Elijah, and Elijah alone is left alive. He escapes, yeah? And he begins to preach against Jezebel and against Ahab. And then Elijah does his, great, his greatest act as a prophet. And that is, he calls the first ecumenical meeting of all of the false prophets in chapter 18 in chapter 18 so you can read this in which he calls all of the false prophets together on mount carmel some of you've been in the holy land and been to mount carmel and he says look if baal is a true god then go ahead pile up your wood yeah and 
and, and make your sacrifices and call down fire from heaven. And if fire comes and consumes your sacrifice, we know Baal is true. So they all make their piles of wood, very dry with sticks and grass, like the grass fire out here. Everything's perfect, perfect, perfect. Even the slightest heat would light it on fire. And they begin praying to Baal. No fire comes down from heaven. They begin cutting themselves and bleeding out, saying, oh, sacrifice to Baal. Nothing happens. So then Elijah goes and he has his fire and he pours not grass on it. He pours water over the top of it so nothing could possibly light it on fire. He offers his prayer to God and fire comes down and consumes the whole business. He then slits the throats of all the false prophets. Yes? Yeah. Which does not make Jezebel very happy. And she begins hunting him. And so Elijah goes and flees and he goes to Mount Sinai. And you're going to pick up this story in chapter 19 that we are reading here. Chapter 19, he goes, he finds himself in a cave on Mount Sinai and God appears to him. And he says, what am I going to do? They're hunting me. I'm going to die. And so this is why this story happens that he comes out off of Mount Sinai. And what does God tell him to do? You go. And you ordain the next guy because they're going to try to kill you. you know? But no, because he's going to now be taken up into heaven in the fiery chariot. But he needs a uh, someone to continue his work. And he throws the mantle on this man, Elizaeus or Elisha, to become his disciple and continue his work after him. Wow. Sorry. That's that was all over lot. the course of like four chapters in that the book of Kings. I know. I know. Oh, my go gosh. It's a great story. It's it a great really story. is. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, epic. It's epic. And you know what's cool is that our gospel account, the gospel of Luke, very much reads Jesus's work in light of, tells the yeah. story of Jesus in light of Elijah, that Jesus is the new Elijah. And many commentators have noticed that, that Luke is intentionally writing the story in, in telling parts of the story of Christ that highlight the life of Elijah and compare the two prophets and thereby by extension during this time of Pentecost, Elisha becomes an example for us of the apostles who are going to continue the work of the Lord who have, wow. have Jesus's mantle laid upon them, if you will, right? Yeah, well, we'll get to that in, okay, in just a yes. few minutes because there are some very obvious uh, references very in obvious. the gospel yes. just by what you were recounting to us from Kings. But I want to I want to dive into what Alicia did here. So why does well, first of all, he asks to go back to his father and mother to say bye to them. But then he doesn't actually do that. He he goes and slaughters some oxen that he was using um, to plow and yeah. used the plow equipment for the fire to. Boil. Why does he do that? Well, I, there's I, I mean. You know, well, I could take a stab at it, okay? Sure. Elijah is giving Alicia this new mission in life, right? Mm -hmm. And therefore, he has to leave behind him all of his former life. And so I think it's quite beautiful, actually. He burns the yoke of the, plat of the, of the oxen, right, that yeah. he had used before. And then you can make all sorts of spiritual applications. And I'm sure the fathers have sort of insights in this, but there's much to meditate upon here about the yoke which he formerly used to put on the oxen to do his work mm, right yeah. and the calling of our ministry in christ and our former life and giving up those things there's going to be a new yoke a new oxen if you will a new field to be plowed 
right? Fishers of men. You're no longer going to be fishing for fish. You're going to fish for men. You're not going to use that net anymore. I'm going to give you a new net. Yeah, which is mm. the gift of the Holy Spirit by which you're going to carry up all of God's people. Yeah. And so there's, there's lots of application, but certainly he, he asked to go back and notice how Elijah responds to him. It's almost, it's a little bit, a little harsh, isn't it? Yeah. And we hear this a similar thing in the, in the ministry of Christ in which he says, don't look back. Right. Well, what's Elisha going to look back to in his former life uh, among wow. Uh, yeah. um, right and and but also among a sinful people yeah. and you remember the wife of lot who looked yeah. back right at her former life that didn't work out so well for her didn't, so, didn't work out so good so there's there's certainly something there but he as you know, rightly noted does not go back to his father and mother slaughters the oxen and cooks them and then feeds everybody with with that okay so again an image of christ who's going to feed us and in the gospel that we're looking at has just done so, right? He multiplied yeah. the loaves and fishes. Well, let's look at the psalm here before we get to the gospel, because uh, we got a lot to talk about with the gospel too. Yeah. But you get this this sense in the, the responsorial psalm. I know you've said before that it's kind of like the, the spiritual application of the first yeah. reading. You see that in, the, in Psalm 16, you are my inheritance, O oh Lord. Like it is worth it to give up all of those yokes and oxen and the life left behind. Annie, you've this is why our, our studies are, are important before going to mass, not because of what I have to say, but simply becoming familiar with the text. Because if you know the story of uh, Elijah and this, and then uh, consequently the story of Elisha, you're going to be able to draw out many beautiful applications to your life and, and be able to then chant, sing the responsorial Psalm for yourself. Right. Yeah. So yeah. what, so let me, let me, let's read through this in light of Elijah. You are my inheritance. O Lord, or in front of Elisha also, right. He's going to leave behind him his father and mother and his, the land is everything is sustenance and go, you know, off with the prophet. There goes my son abandoning his inheritance, but he now is going to inherit the cloak of Elijah, right? His inheritance in the Lord is a greater value than the land and the farm that it's, and he's been doing, right? Yeah. But now let's keep reading. Keep me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Mm. I say to the Lord, my, my Lord, are you, O Lord, my allotted portion in my cup, you it is who hold fast my lot. I bless the Lord who counsels me, even in the right, even in the night, my heart exhorts me. I set the Lord ever before me. With him at my right, I shall not be disturbed. Therefore, my heart is glad and my soul rejoices. My body too abides in confidence. Now, there's a there's a beautiful coming together here of both Elijah, who gives up his inheritance, and Elisha, who's fleeing for his life, right? Because you have not abandoned my soul to the netherworld. Right? My body too abides in confidence. Because you have not abandoned my soul to the netherworld, nor will you suffer your faithful one to undergo corruption. So if you're reading the story of Elijah and he's fleeing from the evil queen Jezebel, he's fearing for his life, but he's about to be taken up into heaven in the fiery chariot. Much to learn because in this light of Pentecost in which we're living, the apostles are going to do the same thing, right? They're going to give up their inheritance and they're going to risk their life. And many of them, well, 
they all give their life for Christ. Even John, right, who's boiled alive in, in oil, lives to tell the story, but nevertheless undergoes this martyrdom. So, so we now, living in the light of Pentecost, can sing this beautiful Psalm 16, you are my inheritance, O Lord, and ask ourselves the question, is he? Yeah. Is the Lord our sole sustenance, our sole hope? And come the trials of this world. We have a kingdom beyond it. Come the loss of lands and riches and so forth of no matter. For we have an inheritance in the Lord himself who will not, who will not allow the evil one and death to have the final word. We are people that believe in the resurrection of the body. And Elijah is an icon for us of what is going to happen for all of us at the resurrection of the body and the inheritance of the kingdom, which is to come. Hmm. Well, we'll see this play out in the gospel as well. So let's turn to Luke chapter nine. We're starting at verse 51. All right, Luke nine. And we were just into this last week, I believe, Annie. Yeah, yeah, it happened. I mean, for for the Novus Ordo calendar, um, it was Corpus Christi. Yeah, we were a little bit earlier in Luke chapter nine. Right. which is one of my first questions for you. So let's read this passage okay, and then we can uh, get to it. Verse 51, right? Verse 51. When the days for Jesus's being taken up were fulfilled, he resolutely determined to journey to Jerusalem and he sent messengers ahead of him. On the way, they entered a Samaritan village to prepare for his reception there, but they would not welcome him because the destination of his journey was Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they journeyed to another village. As they were proceeding on their journey, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus answered him, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests but the son of man has nowhere to rest his head. And to another, he said, follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. But he answered him, let the dead bury their dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to my family at home. To him, Jesus said, no one who sets a hand to the plow and looks to what was left behind is fit for the kingdom of God. Wow. Okay, Sounds like so, Elijah and Alicia to me. Exactly. I know. I was going to say, like, I was, so many of my questions about this passage are answered in just uh, hearing the story of uh, Elijah and Alicia. So um, like we were saying last weekend, we were toward the beginning of, of Luke chapter nine and uh, the feeding of the 5,000 was verses like 11 through 17 we were in last week. So now we're skipping ahead to Luke nine, same chapter further on in, in verse 51 and following. So what has been happening in between there in Luke that yeah. would be pertinent to this. Well, I'll tell you, you would know this without even looking at your Bible by hearing the first sentence of this gospel passage, which is when Jesus was about to be taken up, mm -hmm. he set his face toward Jerusalem or as the new American has it, he resolutely determined it's, you know, it's, it doesn't have the beautiful biblical poetic sense the RSV picks this up a little bit, a little nicer. He set his face 
to go to Jerusalem, which is a Hebrew idiom for being single-minded, right? He set his right. face. For and, being resolutely uh, determined, if you will. For being determined, exactly. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so there you go. You know he's now heading towards Jerusalem. He's finished his Galilean ministry, and he's going to go to Jerusalem for the Passion. And in order to get there, he's got to cross through what is left 500 years, 700 years later of the Samaritan people, which is not as, as it was the whole of the Northern 10 tribes has gotten eaten away on all sides by history. And mm -hmm. now they're, they're there in the middle of the Holy land near the mountain of Samaria, which was built where, where they built their, their altars to the pagan gods similar in an area where Jesus had earlier met the Samaritan woman. Hmm. So this is, so, so this is what's going on. He is, I, I guess I skipped the most important part. And that is just was up on Mount Tabor, mm -hmm. which, you know, is near the sea of Galilee, not too far mm -hmm. from Nazareth. And he was transfigured before the apostles just before the transfiguration. Of course, Peter says, he proclaims him, he confesses that he is the Christ. Mm -hmm. And just before that, the multiplication of the loaves and fishes. So there's your you know, quick context of what's going on. It's towards the end of Jesus's ministry and just before the passion. Now, having gone through the story of Elijah, a lot of what I wanted to ask about the Samaritan issue has already been answered in a way, but <laughs> It's such an interesting passage that they they wouldn't welcome him in the Samaritan. So I guess it was right. a mutual hatred that yeah. was going on here because you were talking about how the Jews saw There's them as half-breeds. No, no, exactly. There's a mutual hatred and competition because either you worship among the Samaritans or you worship in Jerusalem and never the twain shall meet. Ah, okay. Go back with me to the Gospel of John chapter 4. And the story of the Samaritan woman mm -hmm. and verse seven, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said, give me a drink of water for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria, mm -hmm. uh, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So there you have it, right? There's this, yeah. there's this competition. So of course the Samaritans then hate the Jews because the Jews hate the Samaritans, right? And, and there you have it. Jesus, who's a Jew, is going to go, he's on his way to Jerusalem. And why did Jews go to Jerusalem? To worship. To worship the Lord at the temple, right? And, the, and, and so there's a religious undertone here uh, going on. Yeah. Sure. And then, well, I love the response now of James and John knowing the story of Elijah because they yeah. want to call down fire from heaven on these people and uh, that, that they, Elijah had done that. You know, yeah, they want to have a, a they want to have another ecumenical meeting, Elijah <laughs> style. Yeah, and of course now you can ask the question: Well, why the difference now? Right? Yeah. Why, yeah, is, why did Jesus? Why does Jesus them? not call down fire from heaven to consume them? right? Why? Think about the gospel of Luke now and what Luke is saying. He's about to be taken up. Mm -hmm. And when he is taken up, what is he going to do, Annie? Well, he's going to unite the kingdoms. He's going to send down fire from heaven. Well, uh, well, yeah. Yes. Duh. 
of yeah, course. To, yeah. Right. To consume them, right. To consume them in the fire of the Holy spirit. And so to, 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 um, then complete the ministry of Elijah by not only putting to death, but by bringing to life, the man of God. Yeah, the ministry of the apostles is going to be a continuation of Elijah's ministry. Elijah, like, well, we can bring in John the Baptist now, right? Because John the Baptist, as as we know from the from the Gospel of John, is the new Elijah who was expected. Right? Elijah was expected to return. We learn from the prophecy of Malachi. Elijah was expected to return, and John then comes and. Uh, fulfills the ministry of Elijah. Jesus says he is the one, the Elijah who was expected, right? And what does John do? He calls men to repentance. Mm. Yes. Jesus now and the apostles are going to fulfill the other end of that, right? It's one thing to repent, but repentance doesn't save anybody, right? Salvation is not only stopping your sin, but beginning to live the life of God, having God's life within you. Yeah. So there's these two aspects now of this thing. Elijah has put sinful man to death, if you will. Right. And now Jesus is going to send the Holy, the fire of the Holy spirit to bring them back to life Mm. in the newness of the resurrection. That's beautiful. I never thought about the, the fire from heaven like that in that, in that way. It's it. And look, it it just, just Luke is writing intentionally. Why does he say, why does he say that first verse? When the days drew near for him to be taken up. Taken up. Yeah, it sounds right? very Elijah-ish. Yes. It's very Eli- Elijah, but it's also very Pentecostal, right? Yeah. It's very much looking forward to, because it's the ascension to our very human nature. Then Jesus then sends the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's so cool. Luke was a smart guy. Yeah. He knew his stuff. He yeah. Knew his stuff. Okay. So let's talk about what, Jesus said here to these various, I guess you could call them would be disciples that, you know, don't get named in this gospel passage. I mean, honestly, father, it sounds kind of mean, don't you think? I mean, why is he responding like this? Yeah, It would sound mean. It would sound mean unless you realize where you are in the gospel, which is why we do these Sunday gospel reflections, right? Right. Oh, just another story of Jesus going around and now he talks some more and it's nice Jesus and he talks and it was not so nice. Jesus got a bad day. He woke up. It's a bad day. (laughs) He woke up on the wrong side of the the No, this is at the end of Jesus's three-year ministry. He has been walking through this area back and forth, back and forth to Jerusalem, back and forth, up to Galilee, healing people, multiplying loaves and fishes. And these stinking godless people after three years say, oh, I'll follow you wherever you go. And he says, no, you won't, because if you would have, you would have already. You're, 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 you're a bunch of liars. And you're not going to follow me wherever you go. And I've tried to call you and I've tried and you haven't followed yet. What's going to make a difference now? So, yes, he's a little frustrated with these people after three years. And then he what does he say? Calling recalling Elijah. He says, don't you remember the story? His own people rejected him. Yeah. Yeah. He, He had to flee from Jerusalem. Yeah. Foxes have dens and birds in the sky have nets. But the sun, the nest, but the son of man. There's nowhere to rest his head. That's the story of Elijah in first Kings that we're just looking at when he's fleeing from Jezebel. He, he, he has nowhere to, to sleep. He has sleeping on the ground. Yeah. And so, and so again, 
context, context, telling us Jesus is recalling the story of Elijah, and Luke is intentionally bringing this aspect out to tell us what's about to happen. Jesus is about to be, no matter what happens now, he's going to Jerusalem. Don't worry. Don't worry. Remember the story of Elijah. Even though, even though the evil Ahab and Jezebel were hunting them, just like these people all around you, right, Jesus, don't, don't, he's going to be taken up. Yeah. And the Lord is not going to allow his body to see corruption. My brothers and sisters, this is all prophetic about the ministry of the church. And I'll tell you, for us right now, in this nation of ours, in which we're about to God willing see Roe versus Wade overturned. The sacrifice of children. I'm yeah. going to tell you right now, Washington, D.C. is going to burn. Hmm. There is going to be looting, pillaging. They are going to be killing people. Okay. The judges are being hunted. Okay. Their houses are going to be, I, I, it's going to get ugly. Yeah. And it already only, has been ugly. It's already been ugly. I don't have yeah. a television. You know, I don't know what's going on, but I'll tell you, it's not going to be pretty. Trust in the Lord. Never fear to tell the truth. Never fear to preach the truth as Elijah did and as Jesus did. And we may not have, you know, places to lay our head on this side of the veil, but never fear for the Lord has a kingdom prepared for us. Yeah. Okay. So I know you don't like getting into sort of homily mode necessarily well, I just did Sunday gospel reflections, but I I'd like you to continue that just a little bit further, because I do think that when we read a passage like this, especially when it's, you know, just being read to us and we don't get to continue on or get context or things like that at mass, what Jesus says here might be discouraging to some people, you know, it's like, Am I not allowed to to care for my family if I want to be a true disciple of Christ? I mean, I, how do we respond to something like this, listening to it in our own time? Yeah, I really do think this needs to be understood in terms of Lot and, you know, and his wife, honestly, because it, what the, the going back has there's more than just going back. It's more than this simple charity of like you know, taking care of my parents and Jesus doesn't want you to take care of your parents, right? It's not the point at all. Right. It's our former life and going back to our former life, having now been called. Remember, we are in the time of Pentecost. The apostles are about to leave Jerusalem. They're going out into their ministry now. This is the, the liturgy speaking, right? Yeah. The, the scriptures are written for liturgical proclamation. It's not time to go back to your former ways. You're going out. The Lord has a mission for you. You can't bring your former life on that mission. It's not going to work. Yeah. Don't look back and go back to it. Right. So it's only in our relate. I was saying this in a homily recently with my, with my parishioners. It's, it's, it's only in loving the Lord that we're going to be able to love our brothers and sisters, right? Mm -hmm. There's no love apart from the one who is love. There is no unity apart from the one who is unity himself, right? Uh, the unity of the Trinity, yeah? The unity of the Trinity is the origin of all unity among us, right? There's the created order is the created order, right? Not, it doesn't have anything that is not in the Lord first. So you can't have a unity that's not united to him. It's him first and everything in relationship to him. And I really think that's the point that the Lord is making. And we have to, again, understand this. This is after three years. 
in which they could have taken care of their homes. They could have gone into it. It's time. I'm thinking my kids, you know, you could have made your bed and found your shoes because it's time to leave the house. But if you can't find your shoes now, my brothers, you know, I'm leaving. Yeah. And you're not going to be with me. Then you're staying home. That's it. Yeah. We're going to Jerusalem. It's it's Super Bowl time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that was a that was a stupid reference to Super Bowl, but anyway, you understand know what I'm saying, right? Okay. Well, it makes sense, and we see this also. I mean, I think kind of you you know you hear this thread going through about sort of like what is involved in being a disciple, but we also see you know just like I was saying with the the Psalm and the first reading, how it's worth it. You see that kind of playing out in the epistle for this weekend and, and Paul's letter to the Galatians, it's like, okay, yeah, we're not going back to that former way because that's the yoke of slavery is what St. Paul calls it. Let's, let's read it, Annie. Galatians chapter five, Mm -hmm. verse one and verse 13 through 18. Yeah. He says, brothers and sisters for freedom, Christ sets us free. So stand firm and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. For you were called for freedom, brothers and sisters, but do not use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Rather, serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you go on biting and devouring one another, beware that you are not consumed by one another. I say then, live by the spirit, and you will certainly not gratify the desire of the flesh. For the flesh has desires against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you may not do what you want. But if you are guided by the spirit, you are not under the law. Okay, now, of course, it's that last verse that gives us the key to Galatians. And there's many applications, spiritual applications to be taken from this. I'm sure many homilies regarding authentic freedom. And I'll have a couple of words to say about that. But of course, St. Paul is talking to the Jews in Galatia, right? Mm-hmm. Regarding the law yeah. and explaining the law of Christ in contrast to the Mosaic law, right? The, right. the law of the Jews and how the law does not save anyone, the old law. But it's a preparation for the fullness of the law, which is going to be placed in our heart, which is the love of God, right? Which is right. which is God's life within us, right? That is the new law. We've talked about this many times, Jeremiah 31, 31. You can go back and read it, Ezekiel chapter 36, about the law being placed within our heart versus on a stone outside, which we fail to observe, right? Mm-hmm. And so... So that's the, the, the original context. But of course, there's many applications to today regarding freedom, authentic freedom versus license. Yeah. Freedom yeah. is not to do whatever I want, as St. Paul clearly says, right? right? Freedom is to be free to do what is good and true. That's what we are free to do right? We have been released from the curse of the law and the bondage of sin that we might actually live the life of Christ, the life of God. And the life of God is love, right? God is love, as St. John says in his epistle. And St. Paul here brings out, right, in, in quoting Jesus, the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, why? 
why is the whole of the law fulfilled in this way? Because the whole the law was God's will for his people. And God's will for his people is that they live in his image and after his likeness. So the whole of the law, all those, all of the Mosaic law, all of the law that they had to do all these things were all for the purpose of getting them into conformity with the life of God. Jesus then says, okay, now that was all preparation. Now you are to fulfill that by living this life of love to, to one another because I have lived this life from all eternity. Yeah, the father pouring out his life to the son in the Holy Spirit, this loving communion of the Holy Trinity in whose image and likeness we have been made. And now we are set free to live that life in communion with one another. And of course, I mean, living by the spirit, definitely a post Pentecost kind of thing to be talking about. Exactly. And I think that maybe we can finish with this. And that is, is, is it is oftentimes easier to live by the law Mm-hmm. rather than take the responsibility which the spirit gives us and the freedom that we live in now which is why it's easy to return to turn to live as christians in terms of obligation yeah mm-hmm. and i've explained this before and I'll, I'll maybe we can just leave with with this one that in western christianity there has become we oftentimes hear of of we have an obligation for sunday mass an obligation to keep the fast on on ash wednesday and good friday an obligation and so forth like that now lest you accuse me of you know being a byzantine priest of not appreciating the latin tradition not at all many of our protestant brothers and sisters will accuse the church of of really being more like the old testament law right the church has all these laws and obligations you have to follow well, the church in her wisdom has these laws, obligations, because she knows that if somebody doesn't do certain basic things, doesn't live certain things of the life of God, they're not going to have the life of God within them. So she right. sets guardrails, right? Yeah. Those guardrails are, are like the edge of a freeway. I like to use this example. Maybe you've, some of you have heard me say it before. The edge of the freeway or the edge of the body of Christ. And if you go over that edge, you're going to die right? There's a certain point when you're just not living the life of Jesus anymore, right? right? If you can't make it to mass by like whatever it is, the the reading or the gospel, I can't remember what the rule is because yeah. you and I, when's the last time you ever thought about that, right? Did I, did I fulfill my obligation by making it to mass just with the, with the, well, I don't know. Those of us with toddlers who can't find their shoes in time to get to mass may be thinking about that a little bit more than you, Father, who have to that be there be at true. the beginning. <laughs> that might be true. But the law is there not because of you, for you and your toddler. Mm-hmm. The law of obligation is there for someone who's about to fall off the body of Christ. Right. And right. therefore, it looks like Jewish Old Testament law because. It kind of is. It's it's the edge of Christianity yeah. about to become Jews again. Yeah. But we don't live that way. What do, how do we live? As, as committed Christians, we live down the center of the road, right? We keep our car driving down the middle of the road rather than the banging up against the guardrail, mm-hmm. right? We look for opportunities to draw close to Christ rather than warning signs of falling off the body. Yes? Right. opportunities to keep the fast in preparation right so like right now is a time where the the feast of saints peter and paul is coming in the byzantine tradition we have we have a fast in preparation for the feast of saints peter and paul right now now it's not an obligation it's an invitation that's what our faith is it's an invitation 
And if we treat it as an obligation, we're going to keep banging our spiritual car up against the guardrail and eventually we're going to die. But if we begin to answer the invitation of Christ to live according to the spirit in the freedom to do what is good, to do what is right, to follow the Lord, then we'll find authentic happiness. Then the Holy Spirit will be the spirit of our life. Then we will be consumed by fire and taken up into heaven by the fiery chariot and live the life of Elijah bodily in paradise with the Lord. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.